cool. So I then I listened to like the previous podcast you did and read some of the article you you write. Oh yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it. So Great. for those who are uh not familiar with who you are, can you like give us some introduction? Sure. Yeah. So um yeah, I've been coaching uh for gosh, I think this is year number nineteen for me. And I've coached at the NCAA uh, collegiate level the whole time, um, really entirely at the Division One mid-major level. Um, and so I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois, uh, and that's where I was born and raised. That's where I spent my entire coaching career until, uh, gosh, about, what, 18 months ago or so and uh, when I moved here to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, so I spent the majority of my career at Loyola University, Chicago from 2010 to 2021. Um, and it was, I would say, a very unique situation in the sense that it's a cold weather state. Um, I was coaching like short sprinters, hurdlers, uh, horizontal jumpers, vertical jumpers, throwers, combined event athletes, basically anything that was speed power oriented. Um, but we did not have a track. Uh, so that was kind of the unique element of it. And so no indoor track, no outdoor track. And so really what I, I did is, uh, as I would, we had these like slabs of 10, 15 meter, uh, pieces of track that I would, we had like 20 to 25 rolls of them or whatever it was. Uh, and I would like roll it out in hallways in the basketball concourse area. And so it was not very pretty. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a pretty unique situation, but, um, but yeah, we basically had like a 35 meter hallway to train in for, you know, being in a cold weather state, probably 70% of the year, the other 30% when we could go outdoors, like we, we would go to a public track that was open to anyone in Chicago. Um, but yeah, it was unique. You know, you, you try to, you know, you mentioned those articles and the podcasts and a lot of things I've, I've wrote and said in those over the last several years were the product of me trying to find any possible way to keep improving within this very restricted parameters of training in a, a 35 meter hallway. Um, I feel like when you are like really restrained like that, you kind of it's kind of either sink or swim. Um, and so, so you really, you know, it pushes you to be creative and, and think about things in greater detail. Um, and because you, yeah, I don't have a full 200 meter indoor track that many other schools have or a beautiful outdoor facility. I'm not in warm weather state. And so, uh, so I felt like we, I had to rely on, you know, really trying to master what we could do within this 35 meter hallway and, and so that's like what I wrote in those articles and what I've said on previous podcasts are really the product of, of that. Just like searching, discovering, experimenting, figuring things out. Um, and so it was great. I mean, it was very challenging. You know, the days were typically 10 hours on average. It could be 14 hours. Uh, just, you know, you get there in the morning. You have to basically construct a track every day. And then, you you know, I would have about maybe four to five practices a day, roughly, you know, triple jumpers at this time, short sprinters at this time, long sprinters at this time, thrower at this time or whatnot. Um, and so and then you have to like I would have to change the track for the high jump practice and then change it back for the hurdle practice. And then 
change it for the 400 practice. And sometimes I'd have to go to different buildings for another practice uh, just to accommodate the needs for each practice. So, um, yeah, I would about it'd be about three to four hours of just pure physical labor a day. Um, and then it was just all the practices throughout the day. So, uh, but yeah, um, it was, it was very, very unique situation and I'm, uh, you know, it was extremely challenging, but also extremely rewarding. You know, we kind of, I felt like at Loyola, we had a reputation for being the school without a facilities, but we could still produce, you know, conference champions, uh, occasional national qualifiers, plenty of regional qualifiers. We get guys, you know, jumping 760, 770, 780. We get guys under 21 seconds in the 200, for example, um, uh, despite the restricted situation. But I definitely learned a lot, maybe more so about resilience than uh, as much as I did about sports science. You know, it wasn't just like the 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 nitty gritty details and the technical aspects that I learned. But I think just having almost like a ruthless work ethic, I think you kind of you had to have that or you're just going to suck essentially. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I really, you know, that was really how I became what I am today. And, you know, I definitely still feel like I'm growing year after year after year as well. But, you know, I think that really unique situation for well over a decade of just, just scratching and clawing our way to try to keep improving is probably the best way I can put it. Um, really, made me into the coach that I am today. And, and, and I brought that all that I, you know, learned during that time to New Mexico, where I've been not for, uh, uh, for, yeah, what's it been pushing closer to 20 months, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so Loyola, they decided to shift the program to all distance, which probably makes perfect sense given the total lack of facilities. Um, so, so they cut ties with me and they turned it into an all distance program and, and they'll definitely do really well doing that. And it probably fits the, you know, the fact that they don't have, you know, the, any kind of facilities to accommodate sprints, jumps, hurdles, throws, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, so I spent the summer of 2021 just trying to find another job essentially. Yeah. I didn't really have a whole lot of leads. Um, I applied to probably 50 schools or so, Division One, Two, Three, NAI. I didn't really care. I just wanted to. I felt like I still had a lot to to give to the sport, and um, and so I just kept applying to places and really had a very very little interest, unfortunately. But uh, you know, really came down to three of those 50 schools actually showed me legitimate interest, and uh, and New Mexico being you know probably the top of those three. And so they uh, they offered me the position in early August 2021, uh, and it was to coach pretty much anything that wasn't distance. I mean, New Mexico has a very strong reputation for distance running. Uh, our women's cross-country program took second in the NCAA just this past year. Uh, but I was brought in to kind of like, you know, develop the non-distance events. And so... Uh, so yeah, no, I had a, a insanely good first year. It was a lot of fun. It was really like revolutionary for me to go to a warm other state that had a, a world-class indoor track, has a world-class outdoor track, all the facilities in the world, warm weather. It was just like, I, you know, going from training in hallways and cold weather for over a decade and 
to to that was i mean it, it's an actual 180 like i mean people say they have a 180 and maybe i've never experienced a 180 in my life other than this but that was a definite like shift a total 180 shift for me and so so it really was fun like i really clicked with the group and i was really coaching men's sprints hurdles and and jumps and then i had a a men's uh combined event athlete i coached last year and then I had a couple of women's jumpers, but I was mostly coaching men last year. Uh, but yeah, we broke, I think, like three or four 50, 60 year old school records. Like we had two guys run 45 in the 400, uh, 304 in the four by four. Uh, yeah, we had a 1573 triple jumper, a 5600 indoor men's heptathlon. So, you know, really like kind of burgeoning world-class type marks and so it was it was it was really really exciting so it was you know a tremendous year we had a bunch of people get to the ncaa outdoor championships and then and then yeah into this year we're coming to the end of indoor now we're hosting the ncaa indoor championships tomorrow um and so uh but yeah it's been just as good if not better this year so far and I've kind of my coaching responsibilities have expanded this year. So now I'm coaching the women's sprints and hurdles as well. Um, so I kind of I'm really in charge of about maybe 45 athletes or so. Uh, so it is a big group and I I do several practices a day, uh, but it's an awesome group. The talent is extraordinary. Um, and it's it's really been a, a, a pretty remarkable indoor season. And so. I'm excited to get the NCAAs tomorrow, and then the outdoor season is shaping up to be pretty special. Cool. Love that. So I'm going to just jump into the first question, okay? Sure. So it's about, like, the article and the podcast you okay. did about, like, uh, resistance sprinting. So, yeah. like, can you give us your thoughts about, like, how you program resistance sprinting and uh, with or without a 1080? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, um, yeah, I did. I was fortunate to have a 1080 um, when I uh, during probably the last, what, four years of my time at Loyola. Um, I was able to like kind of shift some things around for the budget, uh, save some money so I could make that purchase after my first year as head coach. Um, and so fortunately, we did have that. And that's how we really tried to maximize that 35 meter hallway was through using the 1080 sprint. Um, so, so yeah, we use that all the time. And so, so that was like, that was, I used that machine to program resistance sprinting when I was at Loyola and at New Mexico, we do not have a 1080 sprint. Hopefully we can find a way to get one here soon, or maybe I'll just buy one myself. I don't know. I just, I really miss having it. I mean, it's such a, insanely great i mean you can't even yeah you can't even fathom how awesome of a thing it is to use that every day and and just the adaptations you can develop and the data you can track with it so i will say like my like how i program resistant sprinting at loyola is definitely very different than how i've done it here at new mexico it's much more simplistic here at new mexico because it's just traditional sleds um, but I'll start with uh, like my time or my time at Loyola and talk about 1080 sprint uses because uh, I do think like it was extremely effective for us. Um, 
But yeah, so I uh, after like a year or two of maybe year and a half of of using the 1080 and feeling like we were kind of trying a little bit of everything um, because I mean, there's really infinite data you could track with the 1080 Sprint, and so it's uh, so it's it's easy to like just get distracted by all these different avenues of of data you can track, and so. Um, so I was kind of like frustrated because I felt it wasn't like we didn't have really neat, clean progressions with our training. And so I spent a summer, uh, I think maybe 20 or maybe 2018 or 2019. I forget which year it was, but uh, really trying to sit down and think about, you know, go through all the workouts we had done and try to figure out what was what would be the best path to really purifying the way we use the 1080 sprint so it's very precise. It's very clean. We can map out progressions and we can tease out the best possible adaptations with that machine, uh, whether it be with resisted sprinting or assisted sprinting, uh, which we did both. Um, and probably the assisted sprinting is the greatest thing you can do with that machine. It's just a, it's a very huge stimulus. You have to be, you know, you have to be very careful about how well you program that. Um, but yeah, with the resisted, really the idea I came up with um, during that kind of summer of reflection was to really kind of narrow the zones of resistance. And so what we used to do, the kind of the two mistakes we used to make was uh, we would just stick to like the same resistance for you know a month, two months. So just, you know, maybe we only do 4 kg resistance and just work the heck out of that. And we definitely saw improvement with that. It just, I felt like there's more room for improvement. And then the other way uh, we did was, uh, and I know other uh, people that, other coaches that do this, and they have good success with this, and we did too, is where like the resistance is really varied. Like, so it could be, okay, maybe we go 3 kg, then we go 6 kg, then we go 9 kg, then we go 12 kg, then, and then back to 9. And so like, you have this large array of of resistances that are used within a single session and i thought that was like too spread out you know and so i was really trying to make it more consistent of a resistance so you're kind of working a particular element of acceleration uh because if you go heavy you're really working early stage right if you go lighter you're working more middle late stage and so I felt like when you had the wide variety of resistances that you're kind of, okay, you're starting off working late stage and it moves in the middle and then it early. So it's like the, it's like you're doing too many things and the, the stimulus isn't precise enough. Uh, but if you're only doing one resistance, it's almost like too precise and you're not, there's some nuance there that you're missing. And so so the way I, I like framed it in my mind was to create six cat categories of resistance. And so zone one was one kg to five kg. So within a given session, I would stick to a particular zone to really create precision within the stimulus for that particular day. Uh, so if it was a, a, a Monday acceleration day and we wanted to work Later, mid the later stage acceleration, I would do only resistances in zone one, which was one kg to five kg. And then 
another zone two would be six kg to 10 kg, which we didn't use a whole all that often, but we did it occasionally at times with our higher level guys. And then zone three would be 11 kg to 15 kg. And you can kind of do the math from there, zone four, 16 to 20, blah, 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 blah. So six zones. And I, I never used zone six. It was more just, I don't know, just for the sake of thoroughness, I, I created the six zones, but I never went that heavy. Um, and in the article I wrote for Simply Faster back during COVID, the first one on resisted sprinting, I talk about heavy resisted, uh, but in reality, we did way more light resisted. I, but in the article, I was just trying to more, although I was giving a lot of particular details, I was more trying to demonstrate a philosophy of power training is though that's more so from a broader standpoint. Uh, so I talk a lot about like zone four, zone five, particularly for a long jumper that we had, uh, Eric, who was, you know, he had jumped 769 and I thought like he was on his way to maybe jumping eight meters. And I thought, the way we we're teasing out bigger power adaptations uh, was a big factor in why he was jumping so well that year. Uh, but COVID cut his career short, unfortunately, so he never got to see that last year through. Um, but in reality, we use we use most of our time on the 1080 doing zone one, the lighter resisted. Um, and so, so that like, for example, the way that we would do it uh, is, usually like Monday and Friday would be our speed days. And so if we're doing zone one on either of those days, uh, in the early part of the year, we're probably doing 20 meter resisted sprints and then gradually turn into 25 meter sprints and then into 30 meter sprints. And with the resisted, I didn't usually go beyond 30 meters, but uh, as we extended the length of the reps, um, once we would like settle into that distance after a week or two and we were in zone one, which most of the time we were really what I do is I would track the, uh, you could call it the peak velocity or really like the final velocity or the, the, the final velocity of that particular sprint at that given resistance. Um, so for example, uh, we have one guy, uh, maybe early, probably we'll just say like October, uh, he could hit 10 meters per second final velocity of a 30 meter sprint at 3 kg resistance. So pretty light resistance, but hitting 10 meters per second isn't very slow. I mean, it's pretty quick. Um, and so once he hit, 10, he could hit 10 meters per second at the end of a 30 meter sprint, uh, then Basically, it would be about trying to reproduce that. And once he could reproduce that, you know, fairly easily, then we'd move. Then I'd spend more of my time uh, moving up to 4 kg. And then we see if he could eventually hit 10 meters per second at the end of a 30 meter sprint at 4 kg. Um, and so that was kind of how we did it drawn out through uh, throughout the season was tracking the peak velocity or really like the final velocity of a sprint. Because if they hit a peak velocity before the end of the resistance sprint, I would move them down in resistance, for example. Um, and so, and then, you know, once they've made these adaptations at these given resistances within the zone, then later on, we would 
we would shift back down to the lower resistances and see, okay, could he hit 10.2 meters per second at a three kg or, you know, whatever the number is. So, um, so that, that was mostly how we did it at, uh, in terms of resisted sprinting at Loyola by the last, like maybe two or three years I was there. Um, and it was very, I thought it was very effective. Um, we were, yeah, we definitely were, we didn't have, well, we did have a, a we had like one really good short sprinter, um, but we we had some really good jumpers. So I was kind of like using this with jumpers and long sprinters and short sprinters and hurdlers. Um, but yeah, I definitely felt it was really effective. We would always do, because uh, uh, I do think like in terms of training, you have to think a lot about transfer and resisted sprinting is not the event, right? It's looks like the event It's similar to the event, but it's not the actual event. The, the actual event is unresisted sprinting. And so I do think as a coach, you always have to attribute more value to the the training modality that looks the most like the event. And then you can use these like uh, these complementary elements that are similar to the event, like resisted sprinting, uh, to tease out better adaptations for the unresisted sprinting. Uh, but it's important to not get like too caught up in the only doing resisted. You always have to bring those adaptations back to resisted sprint or unresisted sprint training. And so we would always do one resisted followed by one unresisted. And I'd often have them go through the timing gates for the unresisted just to further track data. Um, but I will say, you know, another thing, uh, not only do you want to keep your eye on transfer, but also individualization. Uh, so I also, like during my time, my last year at Loyola, I had this freshman uh, short sprinter who I was very, I thought he could be really good. Um, and he just had no concept of sprint mechanics. And so I actually like rarely had him do unresisted sprinting and I had him do more resisted sprinting to teach him concepts of force application, hip projection, feeling a more gradual rhythm of acceleration. Uh, so I wanted to, in resisted sprinting, there's a, there's sort of like a sense in which doing a light resisted sprint almost like forces you into good mechanics, right? I mean, it won't be perfect, but you're much more likely to hit great mechanics on a light resisted sprint than you are on an unresisted sprint, um, depending on the level of the athlete. So I felt like for him, particularly individually, he would be, he would learn more if he did way more on the resisted spring, maybe only resisted sprinting, uh, just to set him up for future years down the road, which unfortunately I didn't get a chance to work with him beyond his freshman year. But, uh, but I do think that's another thing as a coach, you're thinking about how can I take these training modalities that aren't quite the event, they're complementary to the event and find ways to transfer it. And that's where a complex comes in, do one resisted, do one unresisted. Then you also have to factor in individualization uh, and based on the particular needs of each individual. And maybe some, you know, younger athletes would benefit more from more resisted. And then the more advanced the athlete, they'd probably benefit from more speed, i.e., maybe even lighter, super light resisted or more unresisted is generally how I see it. Cool. So uh for like teaching the acceleration phase you mentioned, is there anything like if let's say yeah, if you want like 
train your short sprinter to accelerate is there other like coaching cue besides like resistance sprinting yeah yeah i mean there's uh definitely many ways to tackle a question like that and i do think it's pretty individualized um like for example right now with some of the sprinters i'm working with there's like some athletes uh it's kind of interesting like and these are all like really high level athletes uh we, you know compared to what i've uh, just overall but um but there's some athletes i feel like you have to really hammer in you have to be more aggressive you have to push harder you have to be more violent almost um you know it's like the vince anderson mantra of of acceleration where it's like you have to push as hard as you possibly can could you have pushed harder was that the like you know that's I, i've probably listened to 50 talks that guy's given and you know it's always that's always like the take home right and and he's right like acceleration is violence right it's pushing maximally it's making the earth spin is uh you know i think that's a wonderful cue i don't even know where i got it from but i didn't coin it i definitely know it's not for me but it's something i use often you think the of the idea of like i'm going to push so hard the earth is going to spin on its axis you know that's you know that's a, a great cue and so i do think like in most cases that's how you have to teach acceleration but then there's also like another uh, another side of it and i'm going through this with one of our sprinters on the team now it's like the more you ramp up the intensity to 100 percent, the more it just becomes chaotic and they're flailing all over the place and they're they pop up and then they're like oh crap i gotta go back down again and then they pop up again and then you know their posture is bouncing back and forth they're taking really wide steps and so you know it's just chaos everywhere and so for someone like that they almost need to they need to chill out a little bit. They need to take a chill pill. They have to dial the intensity down to maybe 90% so they can really fill out the range of motion and feel the position. And it's more about smoothness for, for those athletes, you know? And so, so I have seen that. And, and I see that right now on my team is like some athletes, it's like, okay, we're going to do acceleration. You need to push really hard. And then, but then they're, they're kind of cruising along, you know, like it's an intensive tempo pace. And like, you know, you have to get on them or you have to maybe for athletes like that, they need more resistance sprinting because the resistance is going to force them to push harder. But then you have another class of athletes where they have no problem ramping the intensity to 100 percent. But then the chaos, the chaos ramps up to 200 percent when they do that, you know, and so so they need to feel more smoothness and and dial the intensity down uh, so they can feel more hip projection they can fill out the range of motion because they're probably turning over way too much so uh, so that's an observation that I, I feel like I've made over the years and maybe more so this year than any other year uh so yeah sometimes you got to teach aggression probably most of the time you got to teach aggression but there are cases where you have to you have to coach them to go slightly submaximal uh, to feel better position and then just a lot of common cues beyond the uh, make the earth spin is a is a really good one that I like. Um, I I I'll, let me backtrack a little. I do like using like changing the environment within the a, a sprints practice, so I don't actually have to cue them too much. I'm big on not talk like over cueing. I feel like 
uh, coaches often like they overcoach and then it becomes like way too cerebral. And, I, you know, I think it's really critical to not take the instinct out of the athlete too much. Right. And so if I'm going to give cues or I'm going to coach an athlete at practice, I'm trying to keep it to like five, five to ten words. And then I'm, I want to walk away and let them try to figure it out. And I'm OK if they have reps where they struggle. I think that's part of the learning process. But, but, but we use a lot of the Vince Anderson's tape acceleration lines. Um, and so I have like all the measurements for those. And so we use those all the time because uh, that the idea is like you have these columns with these measurements and you you uh, the, you tell the athlete like you want to shove your hips past these lines on every step. And, you know, probably maybe the biggest thing in acceleration is hip projection. You're trying to cover ground. You're trying to build momentum to set you up for later in the race as opposed to spinning the wheels and trying to be super quick. Um, and so I do, you know, we use the tape lines quite often, really like almost all the time. And uh, and that helps with hip projection and rhythm. And it allows them to really uh, work with the environment to produce good uh, uh, good movement rather than me constantly like telling them all these different things. Um, and so I do like doing things like that. Sometimes uh, for athletes that are spinning the real wheels or maybe their posture is too low and then they're kind of stumbling to the side a bit. Uh, sometimes I've done where I'll put, okay, so like say you have the, the lane line here, I'll put two tape measures eight inches inside the lane to narrow the lane, but in a safe way. Like I've seen some coaches put hurdles up, like actual physical hurdles up to narrow the lane. I'm too afraid that the athlete's going to hit the hurdle. Uh, so, you know, I, I just feel like it's a little dangerous. And then there, I feel like the athlete might be thinking about, oh, my arm's going to hit the hurdle. And so they're probably holding back as a result. But if you put a tape measure down, there's no, it's just a tape measure, right? Or, yeah, I mean, you could draw a chalk line or something. Uh, but just to narrow the lane with the tape lines, so you you know the this some some step width is definitely good and some rotational elements in early acceleration is good creates torque which means more propulsive force so that's all great but you don't want to overdo it where they're actually like skating side to side and so you do want to minimize that and so so that's what I mean by like changing the environment to enhance the mechanics without me having to like you know, read an article to them, uh, you know, which is, yeah, I don't think that's helpful. So, um, and so, so that I do a lot of that or like, you know, maybe I'll use some cones just, uh, or like a, a, a mini, like a wicket, uh, for, for whatever reason, just to get them to produce the movement I'm trying to get. Um, but if I am going to cue them, you know, a couple things that I, I do go to is, uh, definitely hip projection. I feel like, uh, that that's sort of like a cornerstone thing, because if you do get good hip projection and your hips do unfold from your set position, whether it's a three point, two point or a block start or something, uh, that's that probably means you're pushing hard. You're probably pushing at a really good angle, too. Uh, so hip projection is a big one. Um, stiff ankles, I think, is a really key one, too. Uh, I think a lot of the time you'll see athletes uh, get close to flat-footed on step three four in acceleration and that just means the shins are casting out they're probably they're they're probably bending at the waist too and they're having to go flat-footed to regain balance 
Um, and so teaching them to be stiff and pushing on the ball of the foot horizontally, I think that can really line the acceleration up well. So that's something I, I looked around. I'll just pick one of the two feet and I'll just look only at that one thing for a sprint if I'm concerned about that. Um, and then I'll, you know, some, I think a lot of kids are uh, visual learners these days. So, I mean, it's helpful for you as a coach to video and look at it yourself for sure, but you don't really want to become dependent on that either. Uh, but I think sometimes I'll just video and show it to the athlete because I know that's what's going to click for them. You know, there's so they grew up in the social media age, so they're big imagery people. Um, so stiff ankle is definitely a really big one in acceleration that that uh, that I often look at, and very directly related to that is shin angle. Like I do see that maybe more so with jumpers than I do with sprinters, but sometimes you will see. Uh, if an athlete's kind of pushing too vertical or they're floating, or you'll see the shin, like they'll push off. And then as the leg is recovering, the shin will start to cast out. And then you'll get this slight like brushing action. And you definitely don't want that either because that'll be a missile line contact. So, um, you know, every track coach has heard the piston-like action, but that just means the, the shin is always keeping, and the knee is keeping some measure of compression through each step. And not not like getting not letting the knee get too loose so the shin can cast out too much. Uh so so that's a big one. Um I think like arm usage uh can be kind of helpful. You know, I don't think it's like a big difference, but I think a you know, a bigger range of motion with the arms. You could say like hand above the eye, elbow to the sky is another like, you know, kind of cute rhyme that, that, but it is like actually true, right? You need that kind of movement in those early stages. So, um, so that's, you know, that's another cue I use. And uh, a couple other ones is like in each, you know, acceleration by nature, like almost like philosophically, the nature of an acceleration sprint is sort of like different than max velocity. And so, the unique aspect about acceleration is each step really is like in a very concrete, very literal way, building on the one prior to it. Right. So each step you're really like your posture is raising, you know, call it five, three, six degrees, step after step after step after step. And then once you move into that max velocity range, that probably 30, 35 meter, 40 meter, depending on the athlete, once they are more upright, then the nature of the sprint becomes much more uniform. And so it has a different sort of like uh, feel to it in a way. And so um, so that's another thing I'm cueing the athletes is like a gradual rise. And that's really a product of pushing effectively. Uh, so the pushing is more important, but just to teach them the nature of acceleration, I often I'll just say, you want to rise five degrees every step. It's probably more like six or seven in reality, but just uh just to kind of get the point across five, 10, 15, 20, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's another thing I'll I'll cue. Um and then um what was that last part I was thinking about? Um yeah, I think sometimes like with athletes, just to get them to push. Uh, to push more effective, it's almost like they need to feel slower to go faster. Because uh, they, you know, sprinters always want to feel hyper quick turnover, but what they're sacrificing is force application and and step length. 
Uh, and that's the most common fault. You can definitely over push. Uh, that's also a fault for sure. But the most common one is frequency and and uh, tiny little steps and not really filling out the force application as well. And so, um, so yeah, so those are all in, not in any particular order, but those are all things that I, I tend to go to uh, pretty much every practice, uh, just depending on on the athlete and where they're at and what their needs are. Cool. So you mentioned that you use like Vince Anderson's like tape. Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it the same with acceleration ladder? Yes. Yeah. It's and, really the same thing. Yes, exactly. How, how, like, how would you like tape the, or how would you measure like where should I put the first step and second, third, how would you set yeah. that up? Yeah, so he has uh he has actual measurements. So uh here I can even I I I'm I think it's I got it from one of my buddies at Altus like a, a million years ago. Um let me pull it up here. I have it right on my shoot. On my yeah, here it is. Uh so like column one, so I would well, let me give it a metric. Metrics better than feet and inches, by the way. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, I would just, you know, maybe I get the the track at eight a.m. and then I I'll go to the to the uh, shed and I'll get uh, chalk and I'll get a tape measure and I'll put a tape measure down and then I'll put column one point uh, nine one meters. For the first uh, first line, then point or one point nine five, three point one four, four point like I have actual measurements here, and then I put each there's six columns, and so then I put each athlete in the column that I believe will produce the best mechanics, and so like I basically have a list of okay, Javon is in this column, and then Mikayla is in this column, you know, and so then I just assign them to the column when we do the the, the practice so but i'll just draw it on the track with uh chalk so is it is it like uh so when you apply this is it like the 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 steps should be behind the chalk or every every step the hip should be over the over the chalk yeah mostly watching uh I'm mostly watching to see where the like at uh I'm mostly seeing this if they can show if they can project their hips past those lines and and do it consistently like sometimes the athlete can project past the two lines and then they start to gradually lose it and so then I move them down a column you know what I mean and so that's really um yeah, I'm really just trying to watch hips in relation to those lines and it doesn't have to be perfect uh, but I don't want to see them gradually falling off further and further and further behind the lines throughout the sprint because then they're not really like accelerating anymore, right? And so, uh, so I'm re that's really what I'm watching is I'm not really watching where the foot is hitting as much, it's more the hip position in relation to the line, uh, at throughout the, the length of the sprint. Cool. So that's for acceleration acceleration do you use like wicket drills for like max speed yeah 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah, I I have a same set of columns for all the wicket measurements. There's more. I think there's more like 15 to 20 columns for the wickets. Uh, so, yeah, we use wickets as well. I use it at Loyola. I use it here at New Mexico. Um, so we use it. Uh, it's kind of like you can use it in a whole lot of different ways. Um, I'll just kind of list off different ways we've done it. Um, but a lot of time we'll start with just like maybe 10 early in the year, 10 wickets only. So, you know, it's only 15 meters or something. And we'll stay in flats and I'll put the wickets down uh, just to kind of develop rhythm. Uh, it's early in the year. Uh, and then, you know, progressions of that, maybe, you know, after a week or two, I'll I'll put 15 wickets down and then I'll gradually extend it to 20 and then 25 wickets or or whatever. And then another progression is you could extend the run out from the wickets. So, you know, a lot of time you can run the wicket and then you kind of coast to a finish. But sometimes I'll have them run the wicket column and then an additional 10 meters after that. And I'll put a cone down. You could extend that an additional 15 meters, an additional 20 meters. Uh, and then another thing I've done is maybe the first five wickets are flat and then the next five are up just to feel a little bit more of a rhythm of having to push into the ground harder. Um, you could do it with spikes as another progression because you spike up, you're going to go a little quicker, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I, sometimes I've, I've increased the length of the run into the wicket. Most of the time, uh, like maybe early in the year, it, it might just be like six steps, like a, like take six big walking steps and then run into it. But then eventually it'll turn into do a 10 step walk back and then run into it. But you could even go further to 12 or 15 or whatnot. Um, so uh, I've done it with weight vests too. I, occasionally I've put a lightweight vest on an athlete. If I felt like they, they're not like applying in a vertical force, just to give them a little extra resistance to force them into striking more vertically. That's another thing I've done. Uh, you could do complexes, like maybe one with the vest, one without the vest. Uh, for for athletes that are, uh, if they're overstriders, especially like, you know, I talked about the the the, the different nature between acceleration versus max velocity. Um, for those athletes, and I see this very common, uh, for those athletes that build through acceleration, and then once they get upright, sometimes you'll see, it's almost like they want to feel like they they want to keep building the sprint like they're still accelerating even though they've hit that upright position and then you'll start to see them almost start to go backwards and then they'll start to see the shins casting out because they want to feel that sensation of building still and you know and i think that's like a really underappreciated element of of sprinting is really teaching not only acceleration and max velocity and the different rhythmic nature of them but also transitioning too. Uh, I, I I was fortunate to meet uh, Caleb Cowling. He's uh, a, a sprints coach um, who's who's doing a really good job. I met him at USA's, and we kind of struck up a, a friendship. And we were talking about how um, how like you know sprint coaches. We often we do a lot of acceleration work. We do max velocity work. But what about the category of transitioning from acceleration to max velocity? Like, I feel like that should be a category of sprint training the same way 
Max velocity is a category, the same way acceleration is a category, resisted sprint training is a category, speed endurance is a category, transitioning should be a category of sprint training. So, um, so, but yeah, getting back to my point, like you will see those athletes that don't really understand either conceptually or just like athletically, physically, um, rhythmically, they don't understand the, the, once that, that sprint is built and you're in an upright position and it, it's built, it's just about consistent stride pattern at that point. And so with those athletes, sometimes I'll put them on a, a column, a wicked column that's actually a little more condensed so that it forces them into more frequency. So they can't, they can't fall into that falling back position. Um, so that's another way I've done it. Like sometimes with, with some athletes, you need to force them into frequency to enhance their mechanics. Um, but then there's also maybe more common is the athlete that wants to stay sort of like slightly bent forward and they want to play frequency game. And so in those cases, maybe I'll put them in a, a wicked column that's maybe just a little beyond what they should do just to force them to feel more bouncy and open and having to strike more vertically to rebound and get some flight time in their, in their stride. So there's really a million ways you can use wickets and it's something that we definitely do. And I think it's very effective. Um, but once again, to kind of get back to one of my earlier points, transfer, like the event, unfortunately you don't have wickets at, when you go to the track meet, you know, you're not gonna, it's not a hundred meter wicket race. Right. So it's, it's a complimentary exercise that you have to always bring back to the event itself. And so often when, uh, with wickets, um, you know, sometimes I've done complexes where you do a wicket and then maybe you do a fly or a complete 50 meter sprint or something like that. Um, or like make sure if if you're going to do wickets on a given day, you do like in some form or matter, bring it to just a pure unresisted, uh, unaffected sprint, just a normal sprint without anything, anything there to change it. So um, so I do think that's really key too, because I've seen some coaches where they're so obsessed with like wickets, they it's like, okay, you're not, but you're not like sp just sprinting, you know, that's when you go to the track meet, that's, it's just a, a sprint from zero to a hundred, right. Without any, anything in the lane to affect the way you're, you're moving. And so I do think that's really critical as well. Cool. So you mentioned that uh, we, we, categorize like acceleration and categorize like max velocity and yep. when you teach acceleration there should be like a pushing back or like pushing hard spinning the earth and right, yeah, when it yeah. comes to like max v it's more like punching down right yeah so uh so since you brought up like a uh, transition phase how should or how or what are the things we should look at when it comes to like transitioning? Yeah. Oh man. I love it. Great question. Great, great question. So, so yeah, I think, uh, I think, I mean, ultimately it comes down to what I said before about like an acceleration, you're gradually moving. We'll just call it five degrees every step. You know, it's, that's not an exact number, but just to get a conceptual point across. Um, but then once the, so that's really key. And then once you've constructed the sprint and you are in that upright or mostly upright position, then it becomes uniform. Um, so 
I think in terms of transitioning, uh, a lot of it, obviously, it's coaching that specific thing I just said. A lot of it is making sure the skin angles of the sprint match the spine as well. And so that's something like if you're, you know, maybe at the start of acceleration, shin is here, spine is here, it's going to be like this all the way throughout. It's like very clean build. Um, but I think from a programming standpoint, maybe that's the biggest thing. Because I think like, understanding the transition is not really a difficult concept but it's like how often are you actually doing it you know like and that was something me and uh, uh caleb had, had had discussed uh when you know when we were chatting maybe just a few weeks ago at usa indoor um but but really like okay so we do sleds we do 20 meter sleds we do 30 meter sleds we do acceleration we do 20 meter excels 30 meter excels maybe up to 40 meter excels a lot of a lot of programs are doing fly sprints for good reason flies are great you know they do fly 10s they do fly 20 they do fly 30 uh programs do speed endurance right they do they blast some 120s they blast some 150s all of this is wonderful things that are great. I do them myself. I think it's, I've had tremendous success using all of these training components in my program. Um, but I do think, uh, I do think you have to, if you do acceleration and you do flies, for example, what, how are you going to bring those together? You know, like those are sort of separate because a fly isn't like a full clean acceleration, right? You're kind of building into a max velocity zone. It's really more like a jump approach almost. Um, and then, you know, acceleration is an incomplete sprint, but it's it's a component. It's an early component of the sprint. But I do think, and this is where maybe uh, a few years back, I, I kind of started getting away from flies a bit. I still do them, don't get me wrong. And But I think they're very critical and it's great data tracking as well. And I do, you know, we had mentioned about developing acceleration. I didn't mention this. And I'm glad I thought of this, but another great way to, and this will directly go with working on transitioning, maybe arguably the best way to develop your acceleration is to do sprints into max velocity. And because like working your way into max velocity sort of like indirectly affects the way you accelerate, right? And so that's probably the most effective way to do it is having an athlete work through acceleration into upright and not only do acceleration because then they're actually connecting it all. Right. And, and so, so kind of getting back to your point on transitioning uh, I think the best, the most effective, the biggest transfer is instead of say doing a fly 30, do a complete 70 meter sprint, like from zero to 70 max maximal, or if, you know, if you have an athlete that, like I had mentioned at the start of the talk, you know, needs to take five to 10% off to feel good positions. Yeah, that's fine. It's still sprinting, you know? Um, but I think those complete sprints, zero to 50, zero to 70, you know, those where you do have to work through all of acceleration, you have to work into max velocity sprinting and hold on to max velocity for a 10, 20, 30 meter segment. That's really the key, right? And that's the most specific. And that's where I feel like a lot of sprint coaches, they they get too caught up in acceleration day. 
max velocity max velocity day is flies but they don't really connect it through a complete sprint and so that's where you know that's a thought i had several years back and i started getting away from fly sprints it really just timing a complete sprint with the Brower timing gates. Maybe, maybe I put it at one meter from the start and then 71 meters or 51 meters or whatever it is. At, at Loyal, I mostly had to do one meter to 36 meters because of the, you know, we only had a 35 meter hallway. Um, but then it, it, I think that forces you into transitioning and it's just so much more specific, right? Uh, once again, flies are great but it doesn't really resemble the event as much as just a pure 70 meter sprint does. Right. Um, and so that's where I think like you should hit some flies, but you have to grow out of that and a clean progression from flies is a 70 meter sprint and then maybe an 80 meter sprint. And then, you know, you progress it to 90 meter or whatever, you know? And so, um, so that's what I mean by like working on transitioning, uh, and how it's overlooked. I think conceptually we can think of it very simply. You just work your way through a clean acceleration into upright, and then you're really kind of holding on to max velocity at that point. But do you actually like program that specifically uh, through uh, a total complete sprint from zero to 50, 60, 70, 80? Um, is that part of your program? And, and that's where I think, uh, just from experience I have lacked in previous years. And then I've seen, I've heard a lot of coaches like not really mention doing that, which is, yeah, it's kind of surprising in some ways because it's, it, it would have the most transfer, right? It's just zero to 80 sprint and working through all the phases of acceleration and holding on to max velocity, having built constructed the sprint through acceleration would be the most specific thing. Cool. Love this. So uh, I know I sent you a question list about, and the last question is about like jumping. Yeah. But since we talk a lot about like resistance sprinting, can you like give us some of your thoughts about like assisted sprinting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want me to touch on assisted? Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah, I really wish I could do it here at New Mexico and maybe, you know, someday down the road, I'll, I'll get a 1080 again and I'll be able to do it. Um, but I love it. I think, I think overspeed is maybe a little overrated. Um, but assisted sprinting is insanely effective. Um, and I, yeah, I didn't do a whole lot of it, uh, at Loyola until my last like two years. Um, because I do think like, before you really get going on assisted sprinting, you have to have an athlete that produces at least like B to B plus mechanics, probably more like A to A minus uh, max velocity mechanics. Uh, so they have to hit good mechanics and they have to be exposed to a lot of max velocity training, whether it be within that given year, that season or with throughout their career uh, to really maximize it. Because, you know, I, I I made the mistake early in my uh, uses of the 1080 of kind of throwing a lot of people on it. And if they're not like ready for it, they're just going to lean back and they're, they're going to be like holding on for dear life. You know what I mean? Um, so you don't really want to do it unless the athlete really is like prepared for it. Um, and I, a subtlety is best. 
And and what is the definition of assisted sprinting? It's really the way I would think of it, and maybe this isn't totally accurate, but I would think of it in terms of uh, pulling an athlete at a speed they could probably hit when they're clicking, like when they're in their prime, right? So it's not necessarily a speed they're incapable of. It's just a speed that I'm pulling them at that they would hit at their, you know, if they're at a meet and they're, you know, it's 85 degrees, it's May, they got a 2.0 tailwind behind them. Uh, So that's how I would kind of think of it. Whereas overspeed is just straight up pulling them at a assistance that they can never produce on their own. And that's where I think it's like probably overkill, right? Um, It's almost like sprinting down a mountain, you know, that sounds, I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of transfer to that. And uh, so, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I used it and, and I thought like it was really effective uh, in my final like two years there. And I would only really use like, 2 kg to at really at most maybe 5 kg but not really I wouldn't really use 5 kg assistance that much uh I tended to think of it once again this is more just my own like way of thinking of it to kind of categorize it uh but I would think of like any kg of assistance I would think of as like a 1.0 meters per second tailwind so if I pull them at 2 kg, it's sort of like, okay, I'm giving them 2.0 meters per second tailwind. If I pull them at 4 kg, I'm giving them 4.0 tailwind. That's totally just like, I'm making, I don't have any data to go off of that, but just to kind of help me categorize what I was doing, that's more or less how I thought of it. Um, but yeah, it was, I really looked at it in a very similar manner uh, that I did with the resistance sprinting I, I said before. And so uh, like in the article, the second article I wrote with Eric, uh, we would work sort of like two to five kg and we would basically like maybe we spend a mesocycle working two to three kg assistance. Maybe it does like two at two kg. Let's see the peak velocity hits. Maybe I bump them up to three kg just to get them to feel slightly quicker. Uh, maybe off three kg hits 11 meters per second or something. And we do that for a few weeks kind of see if we can tease out a little bigger peak velocities out of it. And then once, and then he gets used to like getting pulled at two, three kg. It's not a big deal to him anymore. Um, and then maybe the next mesocycle, maybe November, October, November, then I bump it up to, okay, we're going to kind of like work around the three to four kg range. Uh, three kgs, he can hit 11, four kgs probably hitting like, 11, two, 11, three. So that now I'm starting to get close to overspeed, right? Uh, maybe I am at overspeed at that point, quite probably am. Um, and then uh, at that point, like, okay, well, 11, three, 11, four, right? Like that's more than enough. That's way more than enough. And so then the next mesocycle, we'd actually work down from the four to three and start to work the threes and twos again. And I really just tried to see if he could hit the peak velocity hit at say you know three four kg could he do it at two kg where it's very it's more like a gentle pull and that that was my way of seeing okay i got those adaptations at the higher poles to transfer down to the lesser poles and so that was just like a method of transfer that him and i and Mackenzie, the other jumper that uh that i wrote the article about like we just sort of like through experimentation 
uh, kind of came up with that method, if you will. And it, we found it to be enormously effective. It's very tedious because you're only like, you're kind of sticking to one or two assistances for a little while, but you are like paying very, very careful attention uh, to the data and letting the data uh, uh, kind of guide your training from mesocycle to mesocycle to mesocycle. And so it was a very like similar framework that I used to the light resisted training with the 1080s, but sort of like in an inverse way since it was assistance instead. So, uh, but yeah. Is there is there any time that you use probably over like 3 kg or 4 kg on assisted sprinting and their speed actually goes down? Um, yeah, it could be. Yeah, sometimes it can. I mean, there's a sense in which like if you get into like we would usually do maybe like four to six assisted sprints within a session. Um, you know, mind you, like if you are if you're if if you're an athlete and you do assisted sprinting, especially on the 1080, and you're like fully bought into doing it, you're not like scared, right? You're not like sitting back and you're bought in and you go for it. I mean, that's a massive neural neural stimulus. So it's like maybe the biggest possible neural stimulus you could ever have. You know, I don't know, you know, like sprinting at 11 meters plus per second is, I don't know what else could, yeah. what else literally could like match that, you know, nothing. And so you can't really do a whole lot of it, right? Um, so, but I, I think there's a point where like the neural fatigue sets in. And then, like, you will start to see, like, if they are getting fatigued, they probably are sitting back a little bit. Um, or sometimes they'll, like, miss a step. I saw that a few times where if they're not, like, they're getting a bit tired on the fifth rep, they're going to, like, they they miss a step, stumble a little, get back up, and they're like, okay, we're done. Uh, that's that's more than enough. And so, so, yeah, it won't always just be, like, it keeps going up or it stays at a certain level, like, the pulling that that's the thing, like the assistance you're pulling them at has to match like the buy-in of the athlete and the sharpness of the athlete. Like those two have to match mesh together, if you will. Yeah. If the athlete like if the pull is too aggressive, then the athletes, you know, it's the athlete's gonna not buy in, right? They're gonna be yeah. a little timid. Or if the athlete or, or if the athlete's a little fatigued then they're not going to be sharp enough to handle the pole, you know? So you're always, you're always like kind of balancing those two ingredients, if you will. Cool. Love this. love this. Awesome. So uh, last question would be like for, for the jumpers. Yeah. For the chat. I mean, for athletes, they jump, but what if uh, I want to train my like, uh, let's say teams for athletes to like jump higher. How yeah. is, is there, a, is there a transfer between like training them to like triple jump or long jump? Does that change transfer to like jumping higher? Yeah, I think, uh, I think um, it could. Yeah. I mean, I, if I was coaching a team sport athlete, like, uh, you know, we'll just say a soccer player or a football player. Right. I'm going to say soccer because I'm from America and, uh, I'm going to say it habitually, unfortunately, but um, I don't know if they necessarily have to do, I actually think triple jump training would be enormously effective. 
Uh, long jump maybe wouldn't have as much trans transfer, but triple jump basically like if you're doing bounding training, uh, you know, think of all this involved in bounding training, primarily coordination, right? Uh, timing of of the le the upper and lower limbs, um, pos like syncing up your posture, uh, the rhythmic nature of it, and then the massive massive reactive strength that you build, the single leg reactive strength you build on every every time you contact the ground on on a on a bound alternate leg single leg or combo bounds or whatnot. Um, you would build a lot of stiffness throughout, you know, throughout the lower leg, up through the the quad, hamstring, glute, and even through the hips and everything, even a lot of core stability as well. And so I do think like some triple jump training would be extremely effective for a team sport athlete, but I wouldn't be too aggressive with it. Like you would have to start like, you know, with standing long jumps and progress that into like a double standing long jump into a progressing to a, maybe a standing triple jump. And then you can sort of like extend it from there into standing five bound, or you could do like a one step run up into alternate leg bounds, or maybe just some single leg half bounds. You can always start with minimal to virtually no speed and sprinkle in a little speed as a progression. Um, but I do think, yeah, jump training, I think jump training personally is the most underrated element of sprint training. Um, and it's probably even more underrated for team sport athletes. And I think it's one of the, I, I, like, I think you could argue it's, it's on par with like strength training. Strength training is probably more important for team sport and sprinters and everything just for the huge neural adaptations you'll get and, you know, motor unit recruitment. That's probably more important, but jump training ain't that far off. You know, I think it's, it's very, cause then you're training. I, I always feel like with lift, uh, this is a very vague general statement, but with lifting, you're, you're building the engine, right? You're building the engine with lifting, but then with jump plyometric uh, throws or whatever you want to call it, however you want to categorize it, you're training the force delivery system. So it's like you're getting the engine in the car in the weight room, and then you're getting some, you're inflating the tires with the, the plyometrics. You know what I mean? And so uh, you really need both of those things. And so, um, so I, that's a, a huge part of our program for all our sprinters, even like, you know, I I've given a couple of talks over the last year on, on our 400 athletes and, you know, cause we had a couple of guys run 45, uh, and they were mid to high 46 guys coming in. And so they ran extremely well, like low to mid 45 last year. And like, what elements, you know, did I feel like helped? get them to that level. And I think plyometrics is one of the primary reasons for that. Uh, Cause we developed a lot of reactive strength. And so um, and primarily through depth jumps, like staying on a 30 inch box, fall off, bounce up to a 30 inch box is very tedious, very simple. I would time the ground contact. Uh, but when you draw it out through a whole season, it's insanely effective. And so uh, but with jump training, I guess, like, kind of last note, just to kind of categorize it, since we did a lot of categorizing within this talk, especially with sprint training, um, I tend to think of jump training in three really broad categories. Uh, active jumps, where you're just, like, you're jumping off the ground, like a standing long jump, I would say, is an active jump, or a jump vertically onto a box, active jump. That's kind of easy, really any level of athlete could do it, but you know, you can also load up a lot of reps on that, which is great. 
And then there's reactive jumps where you are like really responding from a height to the ground and having to bounce off it. Uh, bounding would fall into that category for sure because you're in the air and you have to come down and jump off the ground. Depth jumps is probably the biggest driver uh, with reactive strength training. Um, and then I think a, kind of a third category is like conditioning where it's like maybe a like low amplitude, highly repetitive jumps. So maybe you're, you got an eight, eight inch box and you're kind of like thrusting up back and forth for 20 seconds or something like that. There's more of a conditioning element to it. Um, and, but there's still a lot of like rate of force development with something like that too, like repetitive contacts. Uh, so I tend to think of it in those categories. And if I do jump training on a given day for a sprinter, or maybe in your case, uh, a team sport athlete, I would probably stick to that theme. And I would, uh, if it's reactive, I would always do it after uh, the particular main training of the day. Uh, so after sprinting, for me, after sprinting, if it's active, I'm probably going to do it before we sprint, uh, just to, as like a primer to kind of get them, uh, get the engine ramped up. And then the conditioning I would always do at the end because that would that would have like a bit of a metabolic cost to it. So I, I don't think you want to do that before you sprint. Yeah, cool. Love this. Love this. That's kind of like all the question I have for today. Great. So for those who are interested in what we are talking about today, no matter it's like resistance sprinting, assisted sprinting, or like jumping, I love that. Um, where can they reach out to you? Yeah, I'm uh I'm pretty active on social media, so you can just search for me on Instagram or Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh just Bob Thernhofer. If you search, I'll I'll pop up, and then uh, my email's on the uh UNM Lobos website. If you want to email me, I check my email pretty obsessively, unfortunately for me. Um, so but yeah, feel free to reach out. Always good to chat with coaches. I always love talking shop and. And Eric, I really appreciate you inviting me on here. Uh, you know, you've had some in incredibly good guests on your show. And uh, so I was when you invited me, I was kind of scrolling through and I was like, wow, I'm honestly, like kind of honored to be part of uh, part of this podcast. So I really appreciate it and love the work you're doing. So keep it up, man. Appreciate it, coach. Appreciate it.